Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. physical pain or emotional pain. Um, there are many, many meditation techniques to work with it. So if somebody was in tremendous pain, I probably wouldn't even start with breathing. I might start with listening to sounds. Um, then I would probably try and get them to manipulate their breath because probably their breath is a disaster. So I might get them to sort of stretch the breath so they really know they're breathing. And that might be one way into the body. But then there's many techniques, like you might want to take the breath near the pain. You might want to let the breath go around the pain if it's in a spot in the body. You might want to let the breath touch the pain. You might want to let the breath merge with the pain and become the pain. There's some practices too with pain where you might want to completely get out of your body. And um, there are practices of concentration. Um, I won't go through them right now, but there's a few really interesting concentration practices that can be a form of pain management. So there's many, many different practices. Now, having said all that, when you breathe deeply, it's very hard to settle your mind. So, as your breath gets quieter and quieter, your mind gets quieter and quieter. When you do mindfulness of breathing, as you start to get concentrated, your breath gets quieter and quieter and quieter and quieter, until you can barely notice your breathing. And there is a phase where you do let go of your breathing and you just uh, let spaciousness happen. And then you'll get there for a moment, and then your mind will come in and go, whoa, this is so cool, so spacious. And then your breath 
will get deep and you'll go back to your breath again. So that's the interesting thing about choosing your breath as an object of meditation is that the quieter your mind gets, softer your breath gets. So I would say that if you're doing a meditation practice that involves manipulating your breathing, you're probably never going to get really quiet. I always say that to people who are runners. I was like, running is my meditation. Okay. (laughs) So, Questions? Yes. And if you could say your names, what's your name? Leah. Leah. My name is Nancy. Okay. And I'm interested in your work because you connect this uh, work around exquisite individual conduct. Mm-hmm. You're interested in connecting that to social change. Yeah. Can you say, can you give us just a hint? I know it's a big topic. How do we, how do we anticipate? direction of your thinking or work? Well, I'm always trying to figure that out, too. (laughs) When I was young, uh, a kid, I've been talking about being a kid a lot because I'm writing right now, and I'm remembering all, I'm telling a lot of stories that I'm just remembering. Um, I spent a lot of time at a hospital because I had an uncle who was diagnosed with schizophrenia, who's the person who taught me about meditation and yoga. And spending time with him in the hospital, I felt like he was the most sane person that I knew. And that sounds quite romantic now, but when I was a kid, it made me feel really isolated from society because I would leave the hospital, take the bus home. I was like nine years old. And like not understand how society was split up this way. So as a kid, spirituality, psychology, meditation, social action, like all these things were kind of this music, all seemed to be the same. And I feel like I'm still doing that. (laughs) Like they all still seem interconnected in different ways. Um, One of the things that interests me currently though is I'm I'm, I'm sort of like coming around again after having been involved actively in many different kinds of social movements to mental health. I'm really, people are doing really good work with climate change and really good work with economics, but I feel like there's a missing piece of not seeing how our mental health is interconnected in all those issues and actually links a lot of issues together. Um, And not only that, I feel like our definitions around what sanity is and what mental health even is are really skewed by capitalism. And so that's what, I be, that's what I'm currently interested in. So it sounds like we're all sitting here, and sometimes I talk more explicitly about that, which I haven't done tonight. But part of that is we all sit here and 
we're thinking, oh, this meditation might be really good for me. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with seeing how we have to work with our own minds. But also to see that as you work with your own mind, it really benefits other people and is a form of social action. The other dimension to it is you don't have a mind. You don't have a mind. There are some unique characteristics that are your mind, and maybe people like, you know, maybe that we can talk about that in terms of epigenetics or Jungian psychology, but still it's like when you start to see the patterns of the mind moving, they start to become less personal. And there's this sense that one is working in the field of mind that is interconnected with every other mind, horizontally, and also in history. When you work with your mind, you're working with the mind of your ancestors also. You're working with the habits of your ancestors. And even though we're obsessed with childhood as being the cause of most of our habits, that's true and also our habits are very ancestral. Why can't most people do full lotus? Because your ancestors didn't. <laughs> I mean, really, it's like the shape of your bones. Don't tell anybody this. I shouldn't say this at a yoga studio. But your flexibility is primarily dictated by your genetics. So when you're changing your body and your heart and your habits, you're changing the culture. You're changing the culture. So... Yes. Uh, Cynthia. Uh, Cynthia? Yes. You had said earlier, and maybe you could clarify if I understood it correctly, when something has happened to the body, it hasn't really happened. Did I understand that correctly? We haven't experienced it yet. There are some traumas right. that can happen to the sense organs but they haven't been fully digested. Okay, they haven't been turned into experience yet. Right. And that's often how we define trauma. It could be all the things you think of, war and you know, violence and so on. So it's like you witnessed it, but you haven't actually been... Correct, correct. But a lot of trauma is also, um, here we go to childhood again, but there's a lot of trauma from misattunement in the relationship between a child and a caregiver, a parent. A huge portion of trauma is from that misattunement. You see? So that gets carried in our body. In our memory. And then certain conditions arise and it triggers that memory. Uh, should I say more? Do you want... No, I was actually yeah. just thinking on a personal note, like my, my son, the oldest one, was just in a car accident that yeah. he caused, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But I can tell just by looking at 
the physiological, like it's happened, yeah. but it's it's like it's just sitting there like a shell, like he hasn't processed it yet. Yeah. So that yeah. kind of triggered like maybe showing him some breathing or something. Of course, it would it would be it would be great. That would be a really really good thing. Yeah. The only thing is, is when someone has some signs of trauma, it's really important that the person who works with him has a little bit of training yeah, in sensitivity to trauma. Yeah. Well, he's seventeen, not his mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but even just to you know, a couple of breath things that just keep me more to yeah. aware. Of absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. What's your feeling about EMDR? Do you want to say your name? Patricia, sorry. Um, what's your feeling around EMDR and trauma? Amazing. EMDR, somatic experiencing. What's the other one? TRI. TRI. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Great. Oh, EMDR? Um, EMDR is a system, I shouldn't describe it because I don't know all the details, but EMDR is a system where somebody goes back through the trauma in a safe environment and sometimes it's done well there's different techniques to get the left hemisphere and right hemisphere to metabolize the experience eye movement desensitization yeah sometimes it's eye movement sometimes they do it with a buzzer it's all different ways to do it how is it different from hypnosis you know what I, I can't really get into all the. I don't know enough about them to, to say. So actually, we should scrap this whole idea of self-care and replace it with we care. 
And we have to include other people in our caring. Um, and also the people who are doing health kind of work, especially like at the managerial level. Um, it's a great gift to be able to give your staff communication skills. Because it's true, that is, if you want the research, that's the second leading cause of burnout in the medical profession. You know what the leading cause is? The leading cause of burnout in uh, help in the medical professions and nursing too is when your ethics don't line up with the ethics of the institution you work in. Yeah. So we all think, oh yeah, it's too many hours. They're running around eating bad food. But actually, that's not the reason. Yeah. Yeah. So I won't say any more about it now, but, but you know, those are some things to start to comp contemplate. You know, <clears throat> um, I'm getting older. I'm, I'm getting, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm getting older. <laughs> I've only been here four times. Happens to everyone. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting older. And, uh, um, and I, I travel a lot, so uh, one of the reasons why I, I'm, you know, I, I used to live in Toronto, and one of the reasons why I left and moved to the coast was uh, to have more time. I ran a center in Toronto. To have more time and uh, just to have more space um, to rejuvenate. And uh, because when I was younger, I could bounce back in 24 hours. And now it's like six days it takes to recover <laughs> from, from teaching. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Renu Sandra, and uh, I'm new to yoga and mindfulness and meditation. Mm -hmm. Where I'm really struggling, and I don't know if other people are, have the same experience, but yeah. I think with mindfulness and meditation, controlling your mind and learning to work with your emotions is one of the key features of the practice, correct? Mm, but what I'm finding going. is that I, I work in a stressful environment where I need my emotions to either get what I want or to convince someone who wants me to do something that I'm not going to do it or to push someone else away to, to make sure they don't get what they want. Yeah. So I guess I'm struggling with wanting to let my emotions go and work with my mind versus needing my emotions to get what I need out of the situation or out of the relationship. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Yep. Mm -hmm. In order to be in relationship, you have to turn your body into an instrument that has radar, that's sensitive so that you know both what you're feeling and you know what somebody else is feeling. So when your reactivity is really high, you're, you, can't, you don't know what you feel. You know your reactivity, but you don't actually know what you feel. So most of the time when we're in a high stress environment, we're in reactivity mode. So that's number one. When you're in reactivity mode, you're not in touch with what you feel, so you can't communicate clearly. 
Secondly, when someone else is really reactive, you need to be very skillful at how you communicate because you could be operating out of your own reactivity, your own unconscious desires, your own aversion, and it could be fueling theirs. And you don't even know it. You don't know it because it's all happening out of reactivity. They're reactive, you're reactive, they're reactive, you're reactive. It's a mess. It's called uh, debates in Canadian politics. Um, the problem is, is that then there's no movement forward in the relationship. So mindfulness practice is about de-escalating your reactivity. So you actually know what you're experiencing. So when you come into a high conflict situation, you have equanimity, you know what you feel, you know what you want. You can distinguish the difference between what you want and wanting to hurt somebody or get revenge or manipulate somebody. And lastly, you can be really skillful at what angle you're going to use to communicate. Without, without a, a kind of mindful attitude, there's not enough equanimity for you to be in that situation and be skillful. You're just, act, you're just acting out of aversion, mostly. You see? So that's how mindfulness comes in. Yeah. It doesn't make you this like super sensitive person that everyone's going to bowl over. Or maybe it does. You might actually pack and go, you know what? I don't want to be in this environment. Why aren't good young people going into politics? Because it's really toxic. It re it's a very toxic environment. No, I think on the flip side, I feel like I'm going to be a carpet that everybody thinks they can walk over. That's my own. But if you, were, if you were in touch with what you're feeling, you'll start to feel when you become a carpet. And you'll make a move to not become a carpet and to become a threshold or a door or a wall or a wave or a snake. <laughs> a viper. Yeah, sometimes you have to be a viper. So last question or comment and then it's bedtime. Uh, you had a chance already, so I'll let someone who hasn't spoken. Uh, yes. <coughs> uh, my name is Cindy, and I find that it's um, maybe a bit more natural to be mindful in the morning time, and as you kind of progress throughout your day, and we all work and have our lives, that it's more difficult when you have these thoughts or these old yeah. stories starting to repeat, or you have situations in a work environment. What are some tips you can suggest for being mindful in like an everyday setting, such as an office? So I think you asked two questions. One is what time of the day should you meditate and how can you bring meditation into your work? Mm -hmm. Okay. One way to start bringing meditation into your work that requires no change in your schedule is breathing through your nose. <laughs> Do you have any uh, sleep issues or asthma or anything? I have asthma. 
You have asthma, okay? I won't recommend that one to you. Just breathe through your nose all day. But don't manipulate your breath. And watch what happens. I really mean this. You might think, oh God, this is kind of like... But actually, all day, whenever you remember, oh, the breathing again, you come back into the present. Amazing technology. <laughs> okay? That's number one. Number two is have a daily practice. So sometime during the day, in the morning if you like it in the morning, I used to be like really big on the morning, but whatever you can find, find a time where you can sit every day. So you're, it's like going to the gym. You're cultivating those muscles of non-reactivity, cultivating those muscles that can decenter you from the experience, cultivating the wisdom to see the emptiness of phenomena. You're, it's cultivating love. That's what we're doing. It's right there. It's right here. Right here. And we miss it all the time because we're covering things over with our reactivity. So, uh, there's many, many other practices. Uh, I gave someone the practice this week of uh, at work to practice uh, generosity. Like make that a practice. Make generosity a practice for one week at work. And just notice all the ways you can do it. And then he came back and he's like, I can't. <laughs> so we went back to the meditation practice again. <laughs> <laughs> so, honest, at least he's honest, right? That's, that's the, beginning, the beginning of practice. Yeah, really honest. I have, I have a two and a half year old son, and uh, yesterday uh, I was getting my stuff ready to come here today, and I wanted to pack a pair of running shoes, and so uh, I went to get my running shoes, and the shoelaces are, were all broken. <laughs> so I said, to, I said to my wife, I'm like, what happened to my shoes? She's like, I have no idea. I'm like, you did something to my shoes. And then so I, I said to my son, Olin, I said, did you cut my shoelaces? He said, yes. <laughs> like enthusiastic. <laughs> Something about not leaving. Yeah. <laughs> so he's he's so so it's like that undefendedness, right? And that's what we're cultivating uh, in our meditative practice. Undefended. You want to hear one more story about my son? Yeah. <laughs> my, my 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 wife is pregnant. We're expecting a baby in a few weeks, actually. And. Um, uh, so a couple days ago, I was pushing him on the swing, and uh, I don't know why I'm telling you this. It's just such a good story. But I was pushing him on the swing, and then he was going like this, like doubling, like he had a bad cramp or something. So I said, what's wrong? He wanted me to stop the swing, and he wanted me to put his hand on his belly. I'm like, what's wrong? He's like, baby's kicking. <laughs> Oh, 
<laughs> okay, I'll leave you with that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>